COVID pandemic highlights the impact of our choices about health and habits on ourselves, each other, as well as the impact of others' choices on us. Think crowding, masking, vaccinations, collaborative problem solving. Our lives depend on the choices we and others make. Sometimes our choices have little impact. Rather, policy, employers, community culture, work and home settings, travel have a more significant effect and seem remote from our personal choices. Clearly, it's complicated. My guest today is Dr. Talia Myron Schatz, a keynote speaker, consultant, and researcher at the intersection of medicine and behavioral economics. She wrote a book, Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health, that was just published. She's a visiting researcher at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Myron Katz was Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman's postdoc at Princeton University and a lecturer at Wharton in the University of Pennsylvania. She is CEO of Cure My Way, an international health consulting firm whose clients include Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, and Samsung. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege who knows a little about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. <music> Thanks for joining me. It's lovely to see you, and I appreciate that you're on the other side of the world. I'm thinking it's pretty amazing that I saw you not that long ago. Yeah, that was fun. It was really such a fun time being at the health conference, and it's almost like redundant because we got you so used to Zoom, and you think you don't really need to see people in person, and then you see them in person, and it's actually great. It is great. All right. So thanks for joining me, joining us. I've been looking forward to this conversation for months. I I love your book. Your life depends on it. What you can do to make better choices about your health. I will put links to the book in the show notes so people can check it out. I'd like to start with when did you first realize that health was fragile? I think if I can go politician on you, Danny, and sure. <laughs> just change the question. Sure. I guess for me, the, well, I always realized health was fragile because actually my mom had huge eye problems when I was like in sixth or seventh. No, when I was six or seven, not in sixth or seventh grade, I was little. Mm-hmm. And she was slowly getting cataracts and could barely see. Then she had operation. She was very fragile. Like she could only walk around at dusk very slowly. And at the same time, there was a movie about a woman going blind. So I would practice at being blind. 
like just in case you know, it seemed a very tangible option. <laughs> so that's about fragility and, and vulnerability. But I guess the way I wanted to change the question was to change it to what I do. And I'm a psychology professor and I study medical decision-making. So I'm a full professor in Israel. I'm a visiting researcher at the University of Cambridge. There's a lot of research that I do. And I work with companies and startups and pharma and advertisers and whatnot on medical decision-making. But the reason why I found medical decision-making so fascinating was that I sat in on a genetic consultation. So it wasn't mine. I was just sitting in because I was invited to teach at the medical school to teach genetic counseling students. Mm -hmm. I was a PhD student at the time. And I said, okay, but I already have three kids and I never had a genetic counseling. What does it look like? And I sat in on a consultation. So on one side of the table was a really great genetic counselor who I'm still friends with. Like I spoke to her today. It's maybe 17 years after that mm -hmm. first encounter. And she's great. She's very smart. She's very knowledgeable and she's very personable patient, compassionate, everything. Perfect. On the other side of the table was a couple who couldn't hear well. They couldn't hear at all, actually. And they had an interpreter with them and they had their little boy with them. And it was a small room and it was crowded and even more crowded when we started talking about genes and chromosomes. It became very packed and I could see, I was puzzled and it hadn't left me the way that you can have the best professional with the best intentions and the most knowledge and the most patience and people who need to listen and understand and process what they're being told under less than ideal circumstances because they come to ask about their pregnancy and they have questions and it's loaded with emotions and they didn't even have a decision to make. They just needed the information. And when they left, I thought, what, what do they remember? What will they mm -hmm. make of it when their family asks, so what did they say? What did she say? What will they know? And that's when I understood that it's just really difficult, even under the best of circumstances. And yeah. we don't always get the benefit of the best circumstances. Yeah. When I think about decision making for myself and my health and i think about what i want from life hmm. and in my experience that's a really hard question for people to answer and not just lay people everybody professionals hmm. as well doctors nurses it doesn't seem like it's a way people often think Or there's large groups of people that that is a foreign way for people to think. What do they want from life? But if it's true, that's a really important part of making decisions. First of all, do you think that perception that I have is true? And how can that be easier? My You have big questions. I, I think it's true for you. Okay. I think it's very true for you. I think there are some things that are universally true. 
and I will fight for. Okay. And one of these things is that people should receive information that they can understand. This okay. is universally true. Okay. Now they can decide. They can say, I don't care about your stupid information. And that's fine. That's how they want to decide. They can say, I'm going to read the New England Journal of Medicine article and I don't need your information. They can do whatever they want, but mm -hmm. they should be served information the way that is uh, understandable to them, makes sense to them, that they have enough time to decide. That's okay. Those are things. That's a universal. That that's a universal for okay. me. That is something that's something crucial. I actually, I found myself, I'm a psychologist. I have a PhD in psychology, not a therapist. I'm, I studied decision making. So when people spoke to me about ethics, I would say, no, that's really outside my realm. But then I realized you know, medical decision making is riddled with ethical choices. I choose. And my choice is that I'm talking about how people should be served information and what decision processes should look like, but not the outcome. Now, how anyone constructs the decision-making process is up to them. You have a very interesting way of doing it, which is very true for you. Some people will be stumped when you ask them what's important for you in life. They'll say, I don't know, my family, my health, making enough money, watching mm -hmm. a, a game, having a beer, it, run, it runs right. the gamut. And I just did a study actually with leukemia patients and their caregivers. So some of the patients were acute, had acute leukemia, others had chronic leukemia. And you could see that there were disparities between them and their caregivers in terms of what's important and how much money should we spend on treatments and should we always continue regardless of outcomes, et cetera. So it seems that there is no answer and also that the answer might shift for people yeah. at certain points in their lives. But I think one thing that is also universally true and I'm adamant about is people should decide however they want. So I have a paper. It's one of my best-selling papers, which of course I don't get any money for, but it's about deliberate. It's a scale that I built with Dr. Glenn Elwin from Dartmouth. He's an MD and he's one of the biggest names in shared decision-making. And we built the scale to rate the deliberation process. As in, how are people thinking? How are they making a choice? And we completely removed the outcome from the equation. I don't care what you chose. Because maybe you chose something that I would never choose. And who cares? Because you're not me. And maybe right. you chose the, the dumbest thing in my mind. Or your doctor says, what are you doing? This is, doesn't make sense, but it works out. Or maybe you choose the right kind of surgery. And it's perfect, but God forbid it gets infected. Let's take the outcome out of the equation. And let's just have a good decision-making process. And, and Anyone can choose any whichever way they want, because thankfully, it's still a free country. The, the only thing is you have to bear the consequences, and you should know what the consequences are. The consequences, yeah. The, the consequences, so there's the consequences that are physical, mental, and then there's life mm -hmm. consequences. So when a clinician is collaborating with somebody making decisions about their health or their medical care, how prepared are clinicians to understand 
what might be consequences. I'm, I'm like drawing a parallel mm-hmm. or a line between the people should be that people should receive information about their choices in a way that they can understand. Mm-hmm. And if part of making the choices are consequences, expected and unexpected, mm-hmm. the the professional will have some understanding of consequences that are physical, mental, behavioral, but not... Mm-hmm life for that person. What do you mean by life? Meaning childcare, transportation, keeping their job, their marriage, other priorities to them, other important things in their lives. So consequences aren't just unintended physical and mental consequences, but there are, you know, other consequences. And that's a hard conversation to have when you're not familiar with a person's culture or their their environment. Am I, I making sense? You are, yes. I think these are two very different perspectives. The professional's perspective will be to say, for example, and I'm thinking about knee surgery because a friend of mine was supposed to have knee surgery. And she said, she asked a set of questions and I'll, I'll get to your answer in a minute. I'm not yeah, dodging yeah. it. It's, just, I'm, it's, okay. it's a long-winded way of getting it. No, that's fine. Go it's, for it's it. A, it's a really important question. Yeah. So she asked a set of questions that I always recommend asking. I call them ask about what matters. And those are, what are the risks? What are the benefits? And also how many people will enjoy the benefits? And what are the alternatives? And the risk was you're going to be pretty immobile for six weeks. What are the benefits? You will have a repaired knee, and this happens for about 50% of the people. Not amazing, but that's what we've got. And what are the alternatives? And we talk a lot about patient empowerment. And I think people can be empowered simply by knowing that it is fine to ask about alternatives. It's not disrespectful. It's within your realm. It's within your permission, if you will. It doesn't undermine the doctor's authority. And apparently she learned that the, an alternative was physical therapy, extended physical therapy, difficult physical therapy, which the doctor said most people just can't stick with it. It's too hard for them. And she said, I'm not most people. And she isn't. She's like... She did it Mm -hmm. by asking about an alternative to surgery and learning that it was physical therapy. She could say, this is what I choose. Now, the doctor doesn't know her. So the doctor doesn't know that for her being immobile is torture. For Mm -hmm. her being immobile means not going to yoga because she adores yoga. The doctor doesn't know that. But he gave her enough information that she could tell that she could do it. Mm -hmm. And also the doctor doesn't know that she has a car, that she's a university professor. So she has a lot of flexibility with her. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have small children. Mm -hmm. So it's fine for her to go to physical therapy. She doesn't have to be in a factory from 7 a.m. till 7 p.m. and then take two buses home. So the doctor doesn't know that, but he gave her enough information that she could 
make the implications. And and for someone else, the same information could have led to a completely different uh, mm-hmm. conclusion. But she had enough to go by to make this translation for herself okay. and say, this is what it means. Okay, so I want to pull a different thread from a few minutes ago, which mm-hmm. is about the family caregiver and mm-hmm. their role in decision making. And it seems to me that the role can either be really helpful or really complicated or both. So when you do your studying, of decision-making. How do you figure in or how do you deal with the factor of the the family care partner or whatever you want to call it, somebody mm-hmm. who has influence on the decision or is impacted by the decision in their lives, not just the person who's not feeling well? I think it's a very important even crucial, often grueling role, the caregiver role. I did one study with caregivers, but I'll talk about it more in the context of end of life in a minute. So the study I did, as I mentioned, was with leukemia patients and their caregivers. And you could see the priorities were a little bit different. You could see that with the acute patients more than with the chronic patients, there was an understanding that both the patient and the caregiver have a role, have a meaningful role, or the family have a meaningful role in decision-making. It's not something that people do alone. And in fact, a lot of the work around shared decision-making involves a dyad, the person and the doctor, but the person often doesn't come there alone. And actually, we're talking about consequences. The consequences apply to the patient, but they also apply to the caregiver. So going back to my friend, if she's immobile, Will someone be able to do the grocery shopping or deliver or cook, or if there are small children, take care of them or drive her around? It's these are things where the patient can make a choice and it influences other people as well. So that's definitely not just a dyad. That's the person, the caregiver, and there are ripples. (laughs) There are multiple ripples. And that needs to be taken into account. I think. In the context, for example, in the context of, uh, and that epitomizes things, of end-of-life conversations, it seems that everyone avoids stepping on everyone else's toes and just avoid having these conversations like the plague. And when I give talks, I sometimes say, I have something to say to you, and I'm really sorry, but that's, we're all going to die. you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's a fact, but which we don't like to talk about. And... Uh, Of all things, when people are sick and when people have a poor diagnosis, their family doesn't want to talk to them about it, as if not talking will just push away any grim events that might happen. The patients Mm -hmm. don't want to talk about it because it depresses their family. So everyone is worried about not just everyone else's health, but also about their emotions. And that's hard. It's just one demonstration of what it's like to be both a patient and a caregiver, and also Mm -hmm. the fact that many patients 
don't just care about themselves and getting better. They also care about the people who take care of them because they love them and they appreciate them. So it's complicated. As you said, it is multiple things. It is multiple things. I think to not acknowledge that is to pretend, and I don't like pretending. I think in health, we are often pushed towards a rosy prospect of things. Mm-hmm. I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist, and I don't like to live under the any kind of tyranny, also the tyranny of positive thinking. Sometimes it's, yeah, it's fine yeah, yeah. to say, I feel bad, and it sucks. It sucks, Yeah. So another feature of decision-making that is complicated is the cost, like mm-hmm. monetary cost. And, and there's different kinds of monetary cost. And for people, it's out-of-pocket expense. And back to the caregiver, it's the cost of the caregiver career or... Mm-hmm the caregiver's health or yeah. the the cost of transportation the cost of whatever when you are studying this studying decision making how does the variation in people's willingness comfort with understanding of cost whether they're the the doctor the patient the caregiver how does that figure in when people are are making decisions uh, have you found in your work so i'm actually giving a talk at a business school in 2 days and i'll be talking about fertility treatments okay and the cost thereof and i'm talking about them in a place where treatments are presumably free and they really are free not just presumably free but There's a lot of complementary medicine and sperm donations and private consultations, and there's a lot of money involved. And that's one of the only studies where I asked women, because I was studying women, about their stopping rule, because I studied women who are at age 43 to 45. That's an age where the prospect of fertility treatments, prospects are not very good. And I asked them a bunch of questions about information, et cetera, and I also asked How much money did you spend so far? Mm -hmm. And is there a limit Mm -hmm. to the amount of money you're willing to spend? And you go in, it's to make a very crass comparison. You go to the mall. You don't just bring all your credit cards, I hope, and say, I'm just going to spend until the mall closes. You say, I'm going Christmas shopping. It's almost Christmas. I want to spend $300 on presents or five or whatever. You set a limit. But going into fertility treatments, apparently, we asked them, is there a limit? No. Half of them said, I didn't think about it. Wow. And yeah. And the other half said, no, there's no limit. And they had spent on average. So half said there is no limit and half said they didn't think about it? Yes. Wow. Yes. Wow. I know. What a finding. (laughs) What a finding. It's it's very similar to, is there a limit to the number of IVF cycles you're willing to have? Mm -hmm. Didn't think about it or no, there was no limit. Now, these things are torturous. It's not fun. Yeah. And yet they continue. So here with the money, they did not set a limit. And I have a hypothesis. I think what happened with the fertility treatment is something that actually Nobel Prize winner Richard Taylor who defined and created behavioral economics, he calls it sacred values. 
So sacred values are things that you can't put a dollar sign on. And I'll give a sports example. You, you root for the Rangers. And then they lose. If you had any sense, you would stop rooting for them. You would start rooting for the winning team. But no, you go home super bummed. Now, what is up with that? The reason is that the whatever team or the Rangers or the Knicks or whoever you're for, that's a sacred value for you. It's not mm-hmm. fungible. You can't replace them with anything else. You're not going to make any calculation now of what is better. You just say, mm-hmm. they're my team for better and for worse. And with fertility mm-hmm. treatments, the sacred value is I want to have a baby. Yeah. Oh. And it's it's going to be expensive. I don't care. Why are you talking to me about money? I don't care about money. Mm-hmm. I want to have a baby. In these contexts and in the context of cancer care, et cetera, people don't think about money at all. But mm-hmm. I believe that in other domains, they do. And over time, they do. And sometimes in the beginning of a medical condition, they take the approach of I'll do whatever and I'll spend whatever. And sometimes they realize that the the fact that they're not calculating is not sustainable. They have to make changes. But it's not the first thing that comes to mind. I know for myself, I think about not wanting to be a burden to my family. So that burden can be how much care I need, personal care, and it be what we can afford. One of the infusions I have is it's $100,000 a dose. And um, yeah, at one point I had to pay $75 and the insurance paid the rest. And then um, it changed to, it would cost me 20%. That was a copay of 20%. And I was like, forget it. There's no way. I forget it because there was no way we could have afforded it. But still, even if it was less, there's a limit. Because then there'd be, I'd have to borrow money from people. My wife might end up being in debt. So there's those factors. Can I I just want to say something about the example. I think between $75 and $20,000, it's pretty obvious. It's pretty right. obvious that's $20,000 is prohibitive. It's right. also not life-saving. It's not like you have to take it right now. It's like you're allergic to bees and the epinephrine shot is $20,000. Yeah. And without it, the person's going to, you would spend that money. Yes. Thank you. It's like, it's clear cut. In those situations, it's clear cut. It's mm-hmm. the in-betweens <clears throat> yeah. that are more complicated. And I think you made a very good point before with the career, with the caregiving burden, et cetera. These things don't always come with a dollar. It's a right. behind the scenes dollar sign. You right, don't right. see it. Nobody says for today's caregiving session, you have to pay. I, I help my mom. She has a caregiver who has Sunday off. So on Sundays, I'm on shower duty. I have to stand by my mom and she takes the shower and then I put her robe on and she's cute and I sit with her and whatever. So these are two hours when I'm not working. I don't charge my mom. I'm not, right. <laughs> not right, crazy right. or nasty. I would do anything for my mom. But what if I had to give up work for that? As it happens, I'm an academic. I don't teach at that time. It's fine. What if you have to get off work? What if it's even more subtle than that? You don't take the better earning job because it's less flexible. It's hard to put a dollar sign.
now a word about our sponsor, Abridge. Use Abridge to record your doctor visit. Push the big pink button and record the conversation. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com. A-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com. Or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Record your healthcare conversations. Let me know how it went. Let me reintroduce our guest, Dr. Talia Myron Schatz, the author of Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health. I'm glad you mentioned vacation. And I'm going to connect this with COVID. How about okay. that? Go for it. So we all know, and mostly when COVID started, we all knew how many people died of COVID, how many people had COVID, how many people were in the hospital with COVID. And what we never saw on TV was how many people were depressed because of COVID, Right. felt locked at home, really missed their family, or just couldn't go out or were at home with in problematic family situations. Mm -hmm. Those are costs to mental yes. health that occurred yeah. in a big way. If you read the studies, young people had suicidal thoughts, reverted to drug abuse, to substance abuse, alcohol, etc. Mm -hmm. And you didn't see that on TV. You couldn't right. count that. Yeah. But it was there. And that's something right. to take into account. So when someone doesn't take a vacation because they don't have the money or they're caregiving, etc., it, it has an effect. Yeah. And so it's hard. I guess the, the reason I bring it up is that the whole thesis, it seems, of this conversation is that decision-making is complicated. And it's complicated with the stuff, and it's complicated with the stuff you don't know. Anyway, I want to hit one more topic. So I want to get into it. So you and I have had this preliminary uh, conversation, mm -hmm. so let me introduce it briefly for our listeners and readers. Um, we are always making decisions about our health, mm -hmm. and we make decisions, and we could decide to do A, B, C, D, E, or to do nothing, which is a decision, mm -hmm. and when scientists study decision-making, it seems that they're studying it in somewhat limited circumstances, whether it's the populations, the settings, the time frame. And it, I just have this niggling for years, if we say in a study that A is more likely to be effective than B, mm -hmm. and so then that go becomes part of a clinical guideline, it becomes part of the culture of recommendations or the regulations of, of recommendations, but we don't keep saying, well, does it really? No matter what, nothing is absolute. It works for some, it's true for some mm -hmm. people and it's not true for others. But we don't do that longitudinal, let's keep seeing, here's a decision was made, now let's keep tracking outcomes 
as more and more people make those decisions. Mm -hmm. So from your point of view as a decision scientist, what do you think about that idea of keeping on studying it and continually learning the outcomes of decisions? I think it's a wonderful idea. I think it's done. In some places, it's done. So Israel, for example, is one place where it happens, not because they're keen on studying, just because everyone has a unique identifier. People stay with their HMOs for decades. Uh, yeah. You're incredibly unlikely to switch an HMO in Israel. If you switch once, it's okay. If you switch twice, it's what is wrong with this person? They're flaky. Mm -hmm. You can't trust them. So mm -hmm. you stay with your HMO for decades. They have a lot of information on you. They know everything. They know your blood work. They can track that. So they can do longitudinal studies using big data because they okay. have the big data. Ah. And that's, yes. And that's, that's the bright side of it. So you talk about decisions and that's where it gets a little bit murky. So basically I can say out of a hundred thousand people who were prescribed something, let's say atrial fibrillation, it's an area that I worked on a lot. So a hundred thousand people were prescribed medication. They persisted with it for an X amount of time. And how do we know that they persisted? Because they kept on filling their prescriptions. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if they filled a prescription and gave the medication to their lover or never took it. I, I don't mm -hmm. know, or took just skipped the weekends <laughs> because they didn't feel like it. I have no idea. So right, I, right. My, my knowledge is limited. And in fact, in one of my webinars, the head of health in IBM research, she participated. She was in the audience. And someone asked the question and I said, you are better equipped to answer it. Why don't you? And she said, we don't know the behavioral factors. So if you're talking about these 100,000 people, did they adhere to their medication? We know, but we really know precisely. Okay. And I don't know much about their lifestyle. It's not necessarily yeah. captured. Do they exercise? Do they not exercise? What do they eat? How high is their stress level? So there's a lot of information right. that is just not captured and will probably never be captured, at least not in a centralized way. That's for Israel, where the, there's some central data. Yes. As opposed yes. to the United States, where everything is like just incredibly fragmented. Exactly. And there was a study where they wanted to recruit a million people. They probably didn't track their health. That's great, but that's a million people out of 350 million Americans. It's less than 1%. And the uh, rarer the condition, the less likely you are to find a person with that condition in that data set. And it's also voluntary. You have to volunteer the information as opposed to people just researchers just going in a de-identified manner and reading my health record. Right. And saying, oh, this woman has been on this since then and whatever. And, and that's just an easier way to collect data. And that's, it connects with everything. It connects with how information systems need to be built for doctors because doctors like to save cognitive effort. It connects with how digital health needs to be served to people, to users, the easier, the seamless the better, ideally with some emotional component that motivates them. That's something that I've been doing for a very long time. And I don't think the need for this is going to go away anytime soon. So if it's easy, it will be captured and it will be used. If it's seamless, better. And if not, it's 
going right. to be difficult. Okay, what you're saying is discouraging in the sense that, so I have this idealistic pipe dream. Even in the best of circumstances, it's way complicated. But if you were to think about what's the germ of possibility in this really complicated, unlikely, whatever this is I'm proposing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like what is, if I wanted to hook on something that's smaller and more possible that would have value to people who make decisions like better understanding the disparities or whatever. I don't know. What's a germ of possibility in this? I think there's already a lot of knowledge. And since you mentioned disparities, I'm doing a, a webinar on disparities. Basically, it doesn't sound like it's on disparities, but it is because we call it, and I'm doing it with someone from Umena, the MD from Umena, Zicolette Edwards. Mm -hmm. And we call it, why can't they just ask? And that's about health disparities. It's about people who are less educated, who come from a lower socioeconomic status, and they're less likely to ask their doctor questions. The doctor says something, they say, okay, because they don't want to feel dumb. They don't want to admit that they don't know. And you know what? It's fine not to know. Not everybody knows everything. And you have the right to understand, even if you only finished elementary school. It doesn't matter. You're a person and you deserve to be healthy and informed. So they don't feel that they have this right. They don't feel that it's culturally appropriate for them to ask the doctor questions, to waste their time, God forbid, to undermine their authority. So that's a, a disparity. And you know what, Danny? It exists. Mm -hmm. We know that. Yeah. We don't need to run another study. And that's, right. you know, the one reason why I wrote my book, Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health, is because I figured there's a lot of studies. A lot of things have already been studied, and we know the answer. What we're not doing, though, is implementing the answer. Yeah. And that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to put the knowledge out there. So I don't think we need to do more studies on health disparities. I think we need to take existing knowledge and say, here's what happens. It's not great. Not because I'm some goody two shoes and I want to pretend like I'm a nice person, but because this is really hurting people's health. It's hurting the economy. It's hurting ROI for health organizations, healthcare organizations, employers. It's a lose-lose, long, mm -hmm. long chain of losses. So let's yeah. make a difference. With the knowledge we already have, there's plenty of it. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, let's wrap up. And let's wrap up with pick one. What should we have talked about that we didn't? Or what do you think the three most important takeaways have been in this conversation? One is that making health decisions is complicated and it's complicated for everyone. That's a, that's a health decision. Another, that's a takeaway. Another is that health decisions don't just happen between patients and their doctors, but rather there's a larger circle. And a third is that there is a lot of knowledge out there waiting to be implemented by healthcare executives, by medical associations, et cetera. 
and also by patients. Show me not just a patient, a person, a person who doesn't know that smoking is bad and physical activity is good. You'd be hard pressed to find such a person. Right. Now, does everyone who know that act upon it? I don't think so. So not, knowledge is not enough. We need mm-hmm. motivation and we need facilitation. We yeah. need all of these things. So you said I was discouraging. It's just realistic. Oh, you don't yeah. have to study physical activity to know that it's good or smoking, et cetera, right, or right. alcohol abuse. It just really is complicated the way people behave. They don't always behave in ways that are optimal for their health. Mm-hmm. They're maximizing other utilities or if I to speak the behavioral economics lingo, or mm-hmm. they just can't do better by themselves, which is a shame. And and that is a space where <clears throat> I think health and digital health still needs to grow. Yeah. We are not there yet. We're amazing with medical knowledge. We're amazing with technology. We're not amazing with the behavioral stuff. Not yet. If anything, we might be taking some steps back. Thank you. Thank you. I love talking to you. What a great opportunity <laughs> this is. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much, Danny. Yeah, thank you. Take care, Danny. Okay, See you bye. Bye-bye. tackling something complex like medical health decision-making, you can occasionally see sunlight while also feeling yourself deeper in a thicket. I feel that way now. Where do I see sunlight? Well, people should receive information that they can understand. All decisions have consequences, predictable or not, expected or not, physical, mental, spiritual, and financial. Decisions involve affect more than the dyad of patient and clinician. It includes family, caregivers, neighbors, and co-workers. And where am I still in the thicket? Sometimes I want to lay down and give up. It's too complicated. Sometimes the right decision seems so clear to me, has been thoroughly studied. Get exercise, get vaccinated, don't smoke. But acting on decisions or knowledge is maddeningly difficult. Don't people see what I see? Well, of course not. How arrogant of me. Decisions involve power. Power is always messy. Even Israel with a common person identifier can't study the effects of decisions over time. I thought it would be easier. Gosh, I'm just getting started. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. Thanks. See you around the block.